0: Uh, Father, we come before you and we know that you are a God of grace and mercy and you desire to give us gifts and knowledge and insight. And we ask for that this morning on a voluntary basis, Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would help us to understand how these arguments come about, their purposes, why we can't just slough them off and, and do without them. There's so much wisdom in the disagreements that we have, for they separate truth and lies and light and dark. We would ask that as we read about Paula Barnabas, you would give us that light, that insight and that wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 15... Paul and Barnabas, they have a great disagreement with some of the men who came down from Judea. We would know them as Judaizers. The book of Galatians really deals with them. Um, All five chapters deal with who these guys are. And they taught men that unless they were circumcised, they could not be saved. Now this great disagreement in the original Greek language it uses definitions like dissension, disputing and insurrection. Uh, I know that you guys are familiar with that with January 6th but it's an insurrection that they were dealing with inside the church and it was not a side issue this issue goes to the very heart of the gospel and the gospel and how it works was being disputed by these Judaizers and Paul and Barnabas were fighting against them. Now, you have to ask the question, well, could an individual be saved if they did not keep the law of Moses? And the Judaizers were saying, no, you cannot be saved unless you keep the Old Testament ceremonial law. Now, this is still around today, which I'll get into uh, probably in a few minutes with the Hebrew roots movement, that they would not say that you have to keep the law To be saved, but God wants you to keep the law as an act of obedience. So let's look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. It says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So we have four things that are going on just in this verse. First, arguments. Then there's customs prescribed by a a habit or by law. There's circumcision, which first began with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. It was later incorporated into the law of Moses. And Joshua, upon entering the land, he circumcised all the men once they crossed the Jordan River. And then also salvation. So arguments, customs, circumcision, and salvation. So we know that there's not one... Wait, who in here has never had a disagreement or an argument? When somebody's about to raise their hand. I like okay, well, <laughs> you know that that is the case. And you have to ask yourself, are you a peacemaker or are you one that's more given to argument? Do you argue and dispute more than you agree? Are you a contrarian more than somebody who likes to come in and just be agreeable. And you'll be agreeable even when you probably shouldn't be agreeable. Each one of us has that type of character within us. Now me, I, I'm, I think my wife would say I'm a little more passionate. You know, I, little, I go a little bit more to the dissent side. And and I will defend what I believe with a passion. So if you have two humans uh, who come together, they will usually have three opinions and those opinions they they go back and forth and they vacillate between which one they actually hold to now these disagreements and disputes there are biblical examples of disagreements and arguments and I started writing them down I just from memory I just started going okay here's one here's one here's one here's one and I could have taken up most of the message with all the arguments that are in scripture The scripture is just about arguments and judgments as a result of that and getting people on the right track and correcting things. I'm I'm just going to give you a few, maybe about 20 here. First argument, Adam and Eve. It's the woman, Lord. The woman did this. God and the serpent. The serpent went against God. Cain and Abel. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was reluctant to listen to Sarah. And Sarah said, get rid of that son. And the Lord said, no, listen to your wife. You need to get rid of that son. Esau and Jacob. Esau was so mad at Jacob, he planned to kill him, is what he wanted to do. Jacob and Laban. Same thing. Jacob feared for his life, and that's why he took off three days ahead of Laban. Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Korah, and Korah's rebellion, Daniel and the satraps, David and Saul, Ahab and Elijah, Samson and the Philistines, Balaam and his donkey. Rehoboam and Jeroboam Nehemiah against Sanballat Tobiah and Geshem Mordecai and Haman the Pharisees, Sadducees and Jesus the Jews and the Gentiles husbands and wives brothers against brother and cat against dogs I mean all that stuff is cats and dogs aren't in the scripture but it's it's this idea that there are so many arguments going on and you just go to any book of the Bible and you can pretty much see those arguments I can't recall one off the top of my head that would be in the Song of Solomon. But the book of Proverbs talks about doing right and avoiding that which is wrong and people who are evildoers in there. And you can go through any of the books of the Bible and you can see that. Now, with this idea of arguments and conflicts, in the end, God's going to win all of them. There's not going to be a single one that he is not going to win because he is perfect and he knows what's right and good. Now, as far as arguments go, I think that there are three types of arguments disagreements. One is just a simple debate where you will have a process of reasoning, discussing and mutual questioning. You'll just go back and forth and you'll see this a lot on YouTube or on Rumble where there are these debates. I I like to listen to the debates and see how they organize their thoughts and they talk to each other and usually I, I can't think of one where they just start yelling at each other It's just a formal debate going back and forth, a disagreement. Then there is an attorney in a court of law. Now, that's similar to a debate, but you're not trying to convince your opponent. You're trying to convince either a judge or a jury. And you're putting forth facts, and you're saying, this is the way it is. And the prosecution comes and says, no, that's not the way it is. And and so there is a argument that's being made in a court of law. Then thirdly, there is the heated disagreement. Now, I think we've always all have witnessed one of those. And it's an angry quarrel or disagreement, having an argument over maybe money or raising kids or where to live or go to school or how we should act. And all of those things can lead to heated disagreements because we hold our views passionately as we should. Now, there are arguments, there, there are so many of them that are in Scripture and so many that we experience. Are arguments sinful? When we engage in an argument, is it sinful? Well, in the debate process, like on YouTube, I don't think that that's sinful. In the attorney in a court of law, if the attorney is lying, I would say <clears throat> they're committing a sin. Now, how would you like to have somebody you know is guilty... But you're supposed to defend them. How do you do that without lying? I don't know. That's why I'm not an attorney. I I would never sign up for that because you have to put forth half-truths and maybe even lie to try to get your client off. Uh, for instance, O.J. Simpson trial. You guys remember O.J. Simpson, who that was? That's another person from the past. You know, you look at that and there were lies that were told there and you just go through some of these celebrity court cases and just so many lies that are out there. So I think if that's the case, yes, it would be sinful. Now, a heated argument should not be confused with an impassioned argument. Uh, When you have a disagreement with somebody and you're going back and forth you can be passionate about it because you have strong beliefs and you believe them absolutely to be true and someone else does not and you can be passionate about it going back and forth and the voices can even raise a little bit Uh, when i was uh, 22 years old i took a bike ride on the east coast and went through boston and when i was when we were going through Boston, we stopped and we just asked direction. There were five or six of us on bikes before it was popular. We were out there riding these bikes. And we came across these men who were sitting down next to the road and there was probably five or six of them all there, all all older gentlemen. And we asked them for directions. And when one of the men answered, I don't know if you've heard the Boston accent, but he was kind of yelling at us and all of us just, we just want to know where to go. But that's the way he was talking and we could have taken offense to it, but then we realized as he was finishing, that's just the culture of the day. And, and so there are cultures out there. They have a tendency to raise their voice and talk a little bit louder and use their hands. And <clears throat> we, we have to be aware of that. But if there can be a debate, Without the sinfulness in there, that would be good, but it can degrade into being snarky. Now, snarky is a word that means snide or mean or malicious, where you just start attacking the person. And this is an ad hominem, where maybe you're not winning the argument, so you start attacking the person excuse me and this I think is sinful because you start aiming your argument at the man and not the argument or you aim the argument at the woman or your children and you're not really focusing on the argument because you feel or I would feel that I'm losing the debate so I have to attack the individual when somebody do, does that, that is a logical fallacy and you have lost the debate already when you attack the person. Then there are sarcastic attacks. Now, sarcasm, I don't believe, is sinful. When, you, when it turns into being snarky, that is sinful. But sarcasm is through the Bible. God uses sarcasm all the time against those who are prideful and after the debate really has been won for instance if you recall the story of Job in Job chapter 38 verses 4 and 5 remember Job was trying to justify himself all the way through the book and his friends were sitting down saying just confess your sin just bring it out there and he was saying "Yo, I'm not full of sin look I don't know why this is happening God has decided to punish me and and then God comes along and he goes stand up I'm going to talk to you. And this is what he says. Where were you when I laid the foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off the dimensions? Surely you know. That's being sarcastic is what he's being. And I've mentioned this one previously in the book of Amos. God was upset with the nation of Israel as he had been several times and he judged them several times. And this is what he says about the women who lay around all day and they are experts in having mixed drinks and they're probably having a few too many calories. This is what he says. Hear the word, you cows of Bashan on Mount uh, Samaria. Is that sarcasm or what? He, He is insulting the women who are there. It says, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, you say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. And so God uses that, and Paul used that, said, you whitewashed sepulchers. He's referring to the Pharisees and Sadducees who are persecuting the Christians and him. And so sarcasm, there's a time for it. There's a time and place for everything, just like Ecclesiastes 3 says. And God uses it, and I think he uses it effectively. But I think that that is the last straw. When you get to the end and somebody just in their pride, they start using ad hominem attacks and you've won the argument and you can say something sarcastic just to drive the argument home, but you don't attack the person. You make everyone aware of their failing in the argument is what you do. And so God uses sarcasm. We should avoid being snarky. Uh, And arguing arguing can be sinful, but arguing can produce some good fruit. Now, will we argue when we have our glorified bodies? We're going to come back here for a thousand year reign of Christ. And are we going to enter into arguments? I don't think so with each other. I do think so. When we come back, the Lord is going to set up his church to rule and reign with him on this earth. Who is going to be ruled and reigned over? We are going to be Jesus's emissaries and people will come to us to adjudicate a problem, a disagreement that they have. And they will have the same natures. The people who survived the tribulation will repopulate the earth and we will help them and guide them in the ways of the Lord. When we do that. They're going to resist just like we resist now. We resist what God wants us to do over and over and over. When we sin, we say, God, please forgive me. He forgives us, restores our fellowship. Well, when we instruct somebody that they have to do something or they should follow the ways of the Lord, immediately their natures on the inside are going to say no. I can remember a particular couple uh, years and years ago uh, they were in the church we were at a different location and they were having issues with each other and they came to me it was after church and we were talking in, in a corner by ourselves and they explained the issue to me they both could explain what it was I just gave them some scripture I don't remember the argument I don't remember the scripture. I've said something along the line of, well, this is what scripture says you could do. When I gave that instruction, it revealed the heart of the woman. She looked at me with a scowl. Her eyes winced, her teeth gritted together and her lips pursed. And it's like, oh, okay. She doesn't want to receive Not what the Lord said, but what I said that the Lord said. She looked at me. I was the one giving her the wrong instruction. She didn't want to hear it. And clearly in this particular case, the husband was just going, this is what he did. He went, you know, what am I supposed to do on this? I said, well, you know, you guys are going to have to work it out, but you want to make sure you follow the scripture. And so the same thing is going to happen to us when we give counsel to someone in the millennial reign... We say, this is what the Lord would have you do. And some people are just, they're not going to want to do it. But in that day and age, God tells us in his word that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. And he will not tolerate disobedience like he has. We are in the dispensation of grace. How that's going to work out, I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. But we will have the wisdom to carry out god's will we will be able to hear the voice of the holy spirit we will be one with him during that time so will we have arguments in our glorified bodies during the millennium not with each other i don't believe because we'll be walking hand in hand we'll have the same spirit within us but with those who inhabit the earth here i think we may have some arguments but we will be the ones who simply debate or instruct they will be the ones that may want to argue will we have arguments in heaven i don't know i like this color scheme over here a little better what do you think no you don't like that why don't you like that color scheme i think it looks good you know infinite number of colors out there and will we do that i don't think we will i think we will have the spirit of unity and we will not have the the inklings the desires the the driving force of the sinful nature it won 't be there, and we 're only going to desire what is good, but all of us will have our own opinions, but they will all be holy, righteous, and just. There will be an infinite number of opinions basically with things that are out there concerning God. There's not going to be an infinite numbers of opinions. We're going to know exactly what his will is. So it does talk about in Colossians chapter three and verse 14, that love binds us. That's the one virtue that binds us all together and brings us into perfect unity and perfect love will be in heaven and we will be having perfect unity amongst us. For me, I started thinking about that a little bit. That's hard to imagine. How many people on this earth have you ever been in perfect unity with? I don't know of anyone that has been in perfect unity. Now we agree a lot on things, but never in perfect unity. Just just start talking about politics or religion. Even in a church, even in the same church, start talking about that. We're not unified on that. We have all these different opinions. And so this idea of having arguments it's existing we're understanding what it is we understand the different types of arguments and dissensions and factions those types of things we we see them even in amongst our own body even in amongst our own families well what are some of the reasons that we want to argue why is that in us and some people more than others but what it why does it happen well first of all number one It's a result of the fall because our natures have been corrupted. Those people who do not have the new nature, the spiritual life, being born again, they are dwelling in that nature, the sinful nature, and it wants what it wants and it doesn't want to be confronted with what it shouldn't have. So, the fall, a result of the fall. Secondly, it can be a spiritual battle light and dark, good and evil flesh and the spirit, the enemy attacks. Just look at our culture today. Look all around us in our culture, whether the political realm, the cultural realm, the worldwide, the nations that are out there. It can be a spiritual battle. If you had to pull back like you're at 30,000 feet and say, what is going on on the earth? You would have to say, this is definitely demonically inspired. It, it's Satan who is doing his thing calling good evil and evil good, replacing darkness for light. And light is being overshadowed by the darkness in this world. Opinions are being changed away from what is godly and holy and right. And it's being changed to just the opposite, unholy and what is wrong. And so we see that it can be a spiritual battle. So first, the result of the fall. Second, a spiritual battle. Third, pride Pride causes us to enter into arguments. James 4, 1 through 3. I'll read it for you. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures so that's the bottom that's the foundation of arguments selfishness that's where we all are whenever you are in an argument with somebody someone is being selfish now it could be both they both could be selfish they both could be self-centered I want this and I'm not getting it therefore I'm upset Husbands and wives happens all the time. You're not doing this for me, or you should be doing this for me. One of the two is going to intervene. Both husbands and wives have the same MO. That's just the way it works. You know, even when it comes to divorce, <clears throat> you know, divorce is is something that Lord does not like, and He wish it never happened. But it happens just as often as a, in the church as it does outside the church. And in those cases this truth still remains that there's somebody in the marriage they're not getting what they desire or what they want. Now it could be something that is wholesome and righteous and good and they're not getting it and the other person is the one who's being selfish and will not die to the desires that are godly, righteous and holy. And so not to place blame on somebody who goes through the divorce it all sin is like that we sin because we're selfish we want to do what we want to do and that has to do with drugs and alcohol that has to do with fights that we get into with our friends and neighbors and has to do with marriages it's just a blanket that all of us we have this virus so to speak the virus of the sin that is there and so we are all condemned in our flesh but in our spirit we are saved because of jesus christ and he delivers us from that now, the fourth reason, first let me go back through the first three, a result of the fall, a spiritual battle, pride. The fourth reason, we have arguments to show which person has God's approval. This is in First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, where Paul says, No doubt there have to be differences, and this means factions or heresies, among you to show which of you has God's approval. So when it it comes to disagreements inside the church concerning doctrine and practice, there's going to be disagreements. And those disagreements are necessary so people will go back to the word, see what it has to say, adjudicate the matter, and one opinion will normally rise to the surface or half of that opinion or a direction is going to be set on what's right and wrong. That's how God guides the church is through disagreements. And it should be that way because we all have our own opinions and we have to narrow the focus on what we're actually trying to accomplish. What is truth? What is right? What is doctrine? And what is good and sound doctrine as opposed to that which leads people astray? Now, denominations and churches, they arose as a result of disagreements. And how many denominations do we have? I I have no idea. There's so many out there and so many sects of different denominations. Even the cults have sects of the denominations. The Mormons, I I forget how many different denominations they have in the Mormon church. Well, the same thing is true with Christianity. You have the Eastern Orthodox. You have the Catholic Church. You have the Protestant Church. And under the Protestant Church, you have the Calvinists and Armenians. It just goes on and on. What do they disagree about? They disagree about, I have a list of like 20, speaking in tongues. You must hold or belong to a certain church to be saved. You must be baptized to be saved. You must be baptized by our formula, by our elders in our church. Worship on Saturday, not Sunday. No musical instruments, hymns only. Must not listen to rock and roll. Must be formally dressed And out of respect for the word and for the gospel, no smoking, drinking, dancing, tea, Coke, coffee. You know, in the Mormon church, I heard this in a study this last week. You know, Mormons, they don't drink coffee or tea, caffeinated beverages. And they were talking about how there's a movement away with the Gen Xers. They're starting to drink that stuff. There's actually a Starbucks next to BYU now and they were talking about that and they went back and they looked at the original writings of joseph smith and he said only you're not supposed to have hot drinks he didn't say anything about coffee or tea he just said hot drinks you're not supposed to have and they have taken that and they've messed it around and and so there are disagreements within the mormon church and that's what i was listening to as previously mentioned then there's this idea of can you date or should you court? Or should things be arranged? I mean, churches split up over this. What about John Wesley and George Whitfield? Those guys, they started out together and then they separated and went towards the Calvinists. And, of course, John and Charles Wesley started the Methodist church. And then we must not have long hair. You know, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Well, if you go by that, a man better have a beard as well, because back in the time of Paul and of Jesus, everybody had a beard, even go all the way back to David. All the men, if they lost their beard, it was a shame to them. David told some of his men to hang out in Jericho because they came across a king who didn't like them, shaved off their beards and cut their pants up the back and humiliated them. And David said, stay in the city of Jericho until your beard grows back because it was shameful not to have the beard. And then women must, <clears throat> cover their heads and men must wear pants and women must wear dresses not that i'm saying that that shouldn't be the case you know but uh concerts or no concerts there's a big debate even going on today of how much of that how much of the world should come into the church to draw the world into the church so they feel comfortable in the church so because it looks like the world and, and so if you have concerts, uh, and we even did that once. We we had a concert with a, a band. It, they were Christians. Uh, they were, um, I, I don't know if it was heavy metal or what it was, but you couldn't understand the words. It was so low. And, and you're going, what did he say? I don't know. Interpretation? You know, we tried to figure out what was going on. And all the kids from around, when we published it, we had a mosh pit going, I kid you not, this mosh pit was just swirling around. Some of the bigger guys in the church kept on pushing the kids back inside to keep the mosh pit going, make sure nobody got hurt or anything in there. And we wanted to bring the kids in. We gave them the gospel and some kids accepted the gospel, uh, Jesus Christ during that time. And so we did that. But how much do you do that? How much do you conform to what the world likes to get the world in there so that they feel comfortable because the church feels like the world? And, and that's a debate. So concerts or no concerts? Or what about, do we teach topical or verse by verse? Which one is it? Most churches teach topical. They don't teach verse by verse. We believe it's verse by verse. Uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Eternal security versus free will. How about lights and lasers and smoke? We even some of the Calvary chapels now. They have the lasers. You know, we could set them up back here where the lasers go up like this and down, and and they can be stationary while I'm speaking. And you'd hear this the smoke come out from behind, and then you'd be able to see the lasers beyond. You know, just the seating area, and you'd go, oh, you know. Oh, it's a holy place. Is that what we do? Do do we make it look like that? Or have all the flashing lights during worship time in in, in churches? You know, they're doing this. Or what about seeker-friendly as opposed to gospel preaching? We won't talk about sin because we want you to come to church and just feel comfortable. The gospel is an offense to those who are preaching. Scripture tells us that. If you tell people they don't measure up, that there's a judgment people get offended by that because they think they're good people when you read the scriptures it says no one's good okay we're all in the same boat but people don't want to hear that i mean if you just look at the coaches who are out there you are good you are perfect you're wonderful just the way you are well what about looking to the future is am i supposed to improve Am, am i supposed to accomplish something am i supposed to better myself and there's this idea no you're fine just the way you are come on into church what about egalitarianism versus complementarianism? Big words. The, the idea that egalitarianism, there is no difference between men and women and their capacity to serve inside the church. Complementarianism says no. There are distinctions between men and women inside the church. This is another move. This ch- Not this church, but churches today are going in the way of egalitarianism. What about uh, go with the culture to win the culture to uh, to... Bring in the people from the culture to get them saved. Do we do we come become like the culture in order to do that? How much do we accept of what the cultural norms are today? For instance, just wait till June, and in June, after having come up from Palm Springs this last week, just wait till June. And it, again, I was listening to the um, uh, debate on Mormonism, <clears throat> instruction on Mormonism. And they're finding out that, uh, quote, unquote, now uh, there are some statistics like one out of 10 people in the normal population identifies as LGBTQ. In the Mormon church, it's one out of five or Mormons in Utah. This was taken back in 2018 there's a big move for that in utah and it has one of the largest gay pride parades in the whole country in salt lake city i was shocked to hear that and there's a lot of conflict right now inside the mormon church over that so how much of the culture do you win or do you do incorporate inside the church to win the culture and they're dealing with that and who to accept and who not to accept and the in the mormon church the next generation the gen xers that are coming up they're more agreeable for stuff like that and that's just the cults that's that's not the church itself well what about baptism do you dunk pour or sprinkle which, which one should we do and churches split over that there's a church that's called the baptist church because they want completely dunked right or is there the Catholic or the Protestant church? Which one do we go with? And Martin Luther and that whole Protestant Reformation that was going on. thats The denominations exist because of all these different things. And you'd think, <clears throat> why didn't God just make one church? I believe that God wants the denominations just like he wants nations. He wants the nations to be separate. We know that <clears throat> he divided the boundaries Of the nations. We know that in the millennial kingdom, there are going to be separate nations. He likes it like that. What's the move of the world right now? No borders, no nation, all the same. We all have the same pigment in our skin. We all get along with everybody that's there. There's no borders. Everybody can come into all the different countries. You see that not just in the United States, but you see that throughout Europe. They're just molding together all the countries because that's the way of Satan. Satan does not want the distinction. He wants everybody the same, everybody compliant, everybody obedient to what he has to say. And God says, no, I want you obedient to the word, but I want you to be an individual. I want you to be your own nation. I want you to be your own culture. And that's okay. That is good. Now, there is the setting that this argument came up in with Paul and Barnabas. The setting of the church, it, it's made up primarily, when it began, of Jewish converts, people who observed the law. They were following it. They lived in Jerusalem. They went to temple. They observed the Sabbath. They observed the festivals, all of that. Then the first Gentile to believe was a God-fearer named Cornelius. He was in Acts chapter 10 and 11. The whole story is there with Peter. Remember the sheet coming down. And then the first true outsider was Sergius Paulus the proconsul from Cyprus, If you remember, his attendant was Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer. And miracles were performed in Lystra and other cities, and the gospel was officially on its way to the Gentile world. So you had this mixture of the Gentiles and the Jews coming into the same church. And that they were trying to worship together. And the Jews would start looking at the Gentiles, saying... This is the way we've done it for thousands of years and you guys need to conform to this. You need to get circumcised. You need to observe the festivals which are there. And if you don't do that, you're not saved. Like circumcision, if you don't follow circumcision, according to Genesis chapter 17, you're to be cut off from your people. In other words, you're not going to be saved. And so they were arguing vigorously because they believed it to be true. And Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, this is not the new covenant in blood that was the old covenant that was the covenant of the law the mosaic law and this is the new covenant the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ and so was it possible to have the gentiles turn to God and retain their identities as gentiles without becoming Jews or proselytes to Judaism and after all Jesus was a Jew and followed all the commandments of the Jewish law so we need to do what Jesus did we need to be little Jesus'es or little Christ or little Christians. We need to be Christians. And that was the argument that would go out there. So there was a tension coming out of the world for the Gentiles into the church. First, there was the world and the spirit of the world. Then there was a the spirit-filled life. Then there was the party. Then there was the praise. Then there was the pride. Then there was the humility. Then there was the wassailing turning into worshiping. Then there was the murdering, whether by deed or by speech. Then there was the mending, blessed are the peacemakers. And then there was death and then there was life. And these people in the world, the Gentiles are going, this is weird. This is not how the world works. And in the church they're saying, exactly, it's different. And the Jews are saying, and there's some more to be added to it as well. Follow all this stuff and you'll be perfect if you do that. And then from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Jews. So you have the Gentiles going, wait a second. This is not what the world is like. This is different. And then the Jews are saying, well, this is not what the law of Moses is like. This is different. For instance, you have the sacrificial system. And you're bringing these lambs and these bullocks and these birds. And you're sacrificing them. And then Jesus says, no, you are the sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. Then there's the temple worship. And then Jesus says, no. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the Sabbath day. And no, we have entered our Sabbath day's rest. Jesus is our Sabbath day's rest. Hebrews chapter 4. 10% belongs to God. And in the church, no, everything belongs to God. You have to ask, how much does God want me to give? And in the Old Testament, circumcision. And in the New Testament, baptism. By the way, just as a side note, I've been listening to other things as well, like where our culture is going, especially the economics, where we're going economically right now. And you see the banks failing, right? And the government's propping up the banks. And with all of that, some of the studies are veering into Revelation chapter 13, and you have the Antichrist, he controls all finances, the economy. He determines who can buy or sell, and they have to have a mark. And I was thinking to myself, let's see, Old Testament, circumcision, New Testament, baptism the antichrist and his rule mark of the beast that's what will identify them what identifies us as christians to the world we go out and get baptized publicly what identifies the jews to the world it was circumcision and that will be the antichrist's mark that mark he will put everybody on and it will be like a religion to them and there's so much i'll end up sharing with you that just where we're going with that, it's just, it gives me chills to think about, wow, this is like right there at the door. But I digress. So you have the circumcision and baptism. You have the Passover. And then that switches to communion. You have the altar where you offer the sacrifices. And Jesus was... the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. And then you had the old wine and old wineskins and new wine and new wineskins. So there was this transition that the Jews had to make too. So not only did the Gentiles have to figure out, well, what's this church all about? But the Jews had to say, no, this is the way it's always been. We need to keep it this way. And that's where Paul and Barnabas come in. So again, verse one, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And Genesis seventeen fourteen, which I alluded to earlier, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And I previously spoke about the Hebrew roots movement. And broadly speaking, what they believe is that you accept Christ, but you're obligated to follow the Jewish laws and practices from the book of Moses. And that word is obligated. It is something that you would do just like baptism. They believe that they practice their faith in a more authentic manner. You're more of an authentic Christian if you follow the practices in the Old Testament. So they do not believe that you are saved by the Old Testament observances, but they believe you are better. You are more authentic as a Christian if you do it. And they are not the same as the Messianic Jews. The Messianic Jews, would they are just... Jews who have become Christians that enjoy celebrating the festivals. They look back at the Old Testament and they see Christ and everything in the Old Testament from the tabernacle to the temple to the sacrifices, all of that. And they just recognize that as being Christians, which is completely fine. But with the Hebrew Roots Movement, it goes beyond that. A lot of the guys don't even go to church. They wear the prayer tassels that come off the the side like a belt, they, they wear them down there. And I know, I think I've mentioned previously, I know one guy who sacrificed a lamb on Passover. It's like, Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. What is, what is this? And so there are all these practices that they would have you hold to. Now, verse two says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp Dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So there was a debate going on in the church and I'm sure it was an impassioned debate. It was a sharp debate. It was something where voices were raising. I doubt if it led into the area of sin. Paul didn't turn to these Judaizers and say, oh, you're just worthless and that's why you hold to this particular view. He, he didn't do that. He's just saying, this is the Old Testament, and this is what it says here, and how Jesus fulfilled it here. And Barnabas was doing the same thing, and the people in the church were going, oh, this is going back and forth know, What are we supposed to do? And you could see how there would be divisions and factions rising up inside the church. And so the church decided, okay, look, Paul and Barnabas, go to Jerusalem, talk to the apostles and the elders there, and they're going to make a final decision on this. Do we have to follow the Old Testament, or Can we forsake those rituals, those? those festivals in the Old Testament. We don't have to do them. We can, but we don't have to do that in order to be saved. And so verse four says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. You could just see them. They're very passionate. This is what has happened. You read the book of Romans and the the Jews, Paul, his heart was just broken for the people because they thought we've been Jews for thousands of years and now everything's being changed and the Jews would lament and say what advantage is there to being a Jew anyway then what if it's just all changing and so this is what's going on and this is impassioned this is something that is not light this would change the whole direction of the church as far as doing works are concerned and being saved verse 6 says the apostles and the elders met To consider this question. So circumcision did not come from the law. It wasn't under the law. Abraham originally instituted that at the command of God. Later in Leviticus chapter 12. It was put into the law of Moses. Well what was wrong with how the Judaizers handled this issue? I got 10 minutes here. I think I'm going to skip that until next week. What was wrong with how the Judaizers handled the issue, or was there something wrong with how they handled the issue? I'm just going to wrap this part up because we are going to receive communion this morning and go to the end here. So we are going to have arguments, and this this is the argument of the church, and it has continued. Uh, I know John MacArthur teaches Lordship Salvation if you are not doing what the scripture says you are not saved that's what he will teach and I forget what decade the book came out but he really caused a stir uh, amongst Christians who keeps all the commandments in the New Testament anyone in here able to do that I'm not I wish I could I want to but the things I want to do are not the things that I do and the things I don't want to do are the very things that are do. who will deliver me from this body of death Paul said that in Romans chapter 7 nobody does and so we're going to have arguments in the church and with each other it's just a given it is going to take place now you have to determine and resolve ahead of time how you're going to handle an argument Hardly ever will you take these steps in the middle of an argument and keep in mind, nobody is perfect. And so I'm going to just wrap this up here with how you argue. This is the way you're supposed to do it. And remember, you have to think about this ahead of time. In the heat of an argument, you are not going to reflect back. What did Pastor Bill say we have to do? The- Let's see. number one, you're not going to do that. First, you pray. Before you open your mouth, you pray. Why? Because the tongue in James chapter 3, it can set a whole forest on fire, just a little spark, and you can cause just mayhem. And it it even, now I think women are better at this. And, and, And I'm saying this because Scripture never talks about the man tearing down his old household by what he says. Now he may break it down, but the woman breaks down her house by what she says. And so I think they're much more skilled at communication than men, and they can use it for good or bad. Men have to learn how to communicate, not use monosyllabic phrases all the time. Women don't. They, they automatically know how to do it. And so we want to pray before we speak. And when a man opens his mouth, he's instructed from Scripture not to be harsh because that's his default setting is she's just ripping on him and he starts getting harsh. That's just the way it's going to work. And you have to determine ahead of time you're not going to do that and that's why you want to pray about what you're going to say. Second, you need to debate. What I mean by that? Mutual questioning without ad hominem. You start questioning and you have to be open to the questions and answering them honestly. That's what an argument is. You go back and forth. Well, what about this? And, okay, take it down a notch. This is what I'm talking about here. You just have to simply ask questions back and forth and take that adrenal gland and just stuff it. Just don't let it rise to the top. Talk it out and limit the emotion. Passion is good when it is kept on a tight leash. It's okay to be passionate, just keep it on a tight leash. Also, you're supposed to use experience, reason, uh, excuse me, experience, reason, tradition, and scripture. Now, I'm going to go back over that this next week when we meet. But all of these things, when you're making an argument, you can appeal to experience. You can say, well, this is what has happened in the past. Secondly, reason through it and use good reasoning. And then you also want to use Scripture. What does Scripture have to say? And tradition. What have we always done? You know, Those things are valuable, although they're not set in stone. And you can come to a conclusion. Like I said, next week... I'm going to go over this even more. And fourth, remember that the arguments are virtually always based in selfishness. If there's one thing you remember during an argument, ask yourself, are you being selfish? Are you not getting what you want? James chapter 4. Then also, if you are unable to resolve the issue, grace just walk away. Just give them grace. If you think that they're absolutely wrong and God needs to show them, give them grace. Just, you know, I want grace. I want mercy. I'm going to extend grace and mercy. And if it is not essential, unethical, or immortal, immoral, consider letting the opponent have their way. Oh, you mean give up this territory? I'm so close to winning. Just walk away. Just Okay. I'm fine. Don't do this. Don't go. Well, fine. Don't do that. Just say, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. You can do that by the spirit with the flesh. No way. No, how the flesh wants to conquer. So this is how we resolve the arguments. And I will review these again next week. And remember, you have to practice this ahead of time. It will never work in the midst of an argument. Now, what we're going to do at this point, Kim is going to come forward, and she is going to play a song. And as we're playing that song, I think by now you know the routine, that if you have something that you need to bring before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, maybe I've argued a little too much. Maybe I, I wasn't acting in a holy way, maybe passionately and sinful, but not in a holy way. Please forgive me about that. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you need to go back to somebody and say, you know, I didn't argue fairly. I didn't say the right things. Even though we're, we are going to argue, I want to make sure I'm doing it the right way. Just like Paul and Barnabas did. And I'll go over how they resolved this. But it, it's this idea that, God, we want to walk in your grace and your goodness. And if I'm not doing that, please reveal it to me. And please me, please help me to make amends. And so in receiving communion, we see how God wanted us to be peacemakers because he made peace with God. That's how we have peace with God, through his sacrifice. And we're going to do this as a way of remembering that sacrifice. So as Kim starts to play, just take a moment. We'd come up through the center. Uh, One of the ushers will take the lids off of this, and you can get the elements and then go back around the outsides and have a seat and wait until we can participate in receiving together.